So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 37. I was preaching on Psalm 37 last week, and you do it again next week. And <coughs> dads, I want to say, you are awesome dads. Happy Father's Day. And my prayer for you is that not only today would your children honor you and your wife honor you, but throughout this year, and that most significantly, that you would live lives worthy of the honor of Christ. Amen. I grew up with a dad, and it was almost as if every dinner time he would have to say at least one joke. Now, he did favor the puns. He was an English teacher, but he did tell jokes. My wife's dad, same thing. You could not escape the dinner table without a joke that he heard at the office. Um, and my dad was a jokester and a prankster, and um, he embarrassed me regularly as a result. Um, but I, I, I came across this old magazine called Boy's Life Magazine. I don't even know if that's still around. When I was a boy, is it still around? <laughs> really? Wow. When I was a kid, and I mean when I was a kid, I was like a young teenager or, or younger, I got Boy's Life. And I came across this page, and it's, it's the joke section of Boy's Life. And I just thought, you know, to honor my dad, who recently has passed away, I'm going to share some of these jokes. And now, I, I'm not going to share the corny ones, like the son who says, uh, Dad, for 20 bucks, I will, I'll do whatever you want to. And the dad says, what are you talking about when, was I, when I was your age? I was good for nothing. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you that joke because I, I personally I thought that was a little corny, but I am going to tell you this one. And so the, the boy says, Dad, are bugs good to eat? He says, son, let's not talk about such things at the dinner table, okay? So after dinner, the father inquires, now, son, what did you want to ask me? And the boy says, oh, nothing. There was a bug in your soup, but now it's gone. So a small son, a son and his father are at a zoo, and they're looking at the tigers, and his dad is telling them about how ferocious they are and menacing and growling, and, you know, those kind of kiddies don't purr, and they're ferocious. And so he says, Daddy, if the tigers, if the tigers got out and, and ate you up, and then the dad comforts him, a little pat on the shoulder, now, now, son, as he consoles him. And the son continues, so which bus would I take home? Thanks, son. One boy's talking to the other, okay, and, and one says, so what does your dad do for a living? And the other boy says, he's a magician. He performs tricks, you know, like sawing people in half. And says, that's interesting. Do you have uh, brothers and sisters? And he says, I sure do. I have four half-sisters and a half-brother. <laughs> so I'm going to conclude with this one. But there are four men in the hospital waiting room because their wives, of course, are delivering their babies. And the nurse walks up to the first guy and says, congratulations, you're the father of twins. And the guy says, that's impossible, amazing. I work for the Minnesota Twins. Wow. And this nurse walks up to the second guy and says, congratulations, you're the father of triplets. And the guy says, no way, you're not going to believe this, I work for the 3M company. And the nurse approaches the third guy, and she says, congratulations, you're the father of quadruplets. And the guy says, that is so strange. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. And they look over at the other, the fourth guy, and he, he, he's groaning, and he's banging his head against the wall. And they look at him and says, what's wrong? And he says, I work for 7-Up. I appreciate your uh, honesty and, and, and being able to laugh at those jokes, um, probably because they're not mine. Anyways, but, you know, it's really easy for us as dads 
you know, to kind of get in this competitive mode. Any of you dads, like, how many of you got really, dads, got really competitive at the kickball game just the other week? Any of you? Mike, Mike's the only honest man here. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate your honesty. Okay. I, I heard Tim mumbling, we're going to take him down. I heard that. I really think I heard that. Uh, no? No? <laughs> But us dads, we can be, we can be competitive, we can, we can compare, uh, like, sometimes how much do we make, how well do we provide, we can get caught in that trap, because sometimes it's how much we make that tends, at least we feel, tends to add value to us when truly it does not. But we can get caught up in that type of competitiveness, comparison, you know, the importance of our work position, and how significant an impact and, and place our, our our position is at work, or how obedient our kids are. You know, we talk about a story in which we came downstairs and our kids were watching TV and one of them hadn't cleaned his room and says, you know, Jimmy, you need to head upstairs. You need to, you need to clean your room. And immediately he stops watching TV and he runs upstairs and within 15 minutes, the whole room is cleaned and vacuumed. And then he comes downstairs and he does the dishes and he cleans the whole room. And then I woke up. <coughs> And we can compare ourselves with one another, right? Our kids, accomplishments, trophies they've won, gifts that we've given to our kids. Psalm 37 talks about this idea of how we can tend to compare ourselves with the people in the world. And and in all honesty, it doesn't stop there, does it? It's, It's our neighbors. It's the people in the church. And God wants to deal with this attitude of competitiveness in that way. Now, I'm all for competition. I love competition. I, 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 I love to um, harangue people on the, on the soccer field and joke around with them. But this type of competitiveness that I'm, talking, that I'm talking about, that stirs up these comparisons and the envy, God says, man, I want to set you free from that. I want to set you free from that. Psalm 37 even tells us, it says, dwell in the land. And as I mentioned last week, the land was the inheritance that God had given to the Israelites when they come out of Egypt from the Exodus, and they had inherited the land. And we saw as Jabez, <coughs> excuse me, Jabez said, extend my territory. And he wasn't, it wasn't because he was eyeing his neighbor's property, extend my territory, I want his. Much like Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, that type of thing. No, instead it was that they were continuing to need to move these, uh, the, the Canaanites and, and truly the wickedness that had gripped that culture and was destroying it from the, within. And God is, was saying it's, it, Remove them from the land. And it was hard. And Jabez basically was saying, extend my territory. In other words, this is the inheritance, but the enemy is living in my inheritance. And God empowered and enabled him to remove them. And, and this is, was God's answer in prayer. Not that Jabez was eyeing someone else's property, but he wanted to fully inherit the land that he had been given. But the problem comes when we are no longer satisfied with the land, this little plot of ground that we have. If it's grasslands, we envy the people who have the mountains. And when we live on the mountains, it says, boy, it sure would be nice to be able to live in the the lowlands and, you know, with the grass and I guess, you know, spend all that time mowing the lawns. I don't know. But we, we tend to envy people who have something that we don't. 
Dads, we're, we're no exception here, but the challenge nevertheless is dwell in the land. So follow me as I read our text today, and we're actually going to be looking at several scripture passages. I am going to try and keep this short, Lord, help me with that. But starting with verse 25, it says, I was young and now I am old. Understand, this is David speaking here. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land. In other words, everything God has given you for your life, not what you want that is someone else's or their gifting that he just has not given you, talents, intelligence, whatever it is that he's given you. No, your land, dwell in your land. That is what God wants you to fully inherit. And it says forever, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. They will be protected forever, but the offspring of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. I've entitled this message this morning, A Family Inheritance, because that's really what we're getting a picture of here. We, we have this picture of fathers, of, of men who are righteous, and because of that, God allows them, like Jabez, to inherit the full extent of their land, of everything that God has for them, and, and acquiring this destiny, and as Ephesians puts it, so is be able to walk in all of the good works God has prepared in advance for you. God has a life prepared for you that's filled with good works, that's filled with adventure, that honestly is filled with hard times, but there's a purpose in it and a goal in all of that for your strengthening and advancing of his kingdom that many times we don't see. All of this is the inheritance God is wanting you to apprehend, and, and as he says in the text here, dwell in forever. And, and what that means then for generations is that it's, it's not just you, righteous men of God here this morning, to dwell in the land. It's for your children. It's for the generations. How do you dwell in, in what God has given you forever apart from what you pass on then to your children that they might be able to dwell in that land? And so what we see here is clearly, men, as you live high impactful lives, you will impact your family to the degree where they will be set up for success. Actually, in Psalm 112 verse, excuse me, <clears throat> yeah, Psalm 112 verse 2, it says, his children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Your children will be blessed. Now, here's an interesting thing. It says they will be mighty in the land. I mean, I want my children. I have five of them. I want them to be mighty in this generation. I want God to raise them up and, and utilize them as moms or as dads, as business workers, maybe in ministry, uh, pastoring, or whatever it would be. I want them to be effective. I want them to be filled with joy as they labor in Christ's kingdom and for, for, for not just the rest of their lives, but for all of, inter all of eternity. That is, that is the nature of our lives that we live for eternity. That we would dwell in the land forever. It says here that they will be mighty in the land. That word, that Hebrew word for mighty, yes, it means strong or mighty. It means also valiant, and it's used for champions. 
I want my children to be champions in the land. I want them to be, even though they may encounter the Goliaths of their lives, that they are the Davids. They are the champions. They learn how to rely on God. You remember when David encountered the uh, Goliath or, or wanted to, and he had to try and, if you will, sell himself to King Saul. I can do this. And so he, he talks about the, the bear and the lion that he had overcome. Now, I've never, I've never killed a bear or killed a lion. If I did, I would rather do it at about 100 yards. But David did it face to face with his hands. I'm sorry, that's not me. I would like it to, well, I'm not sure I would like it to be. Just as the boy was joking about the tigers. <laughs> Anyways, um, it, it, it would be easy for us to back, that was not David's nature. He was valiant, he was a champion, and he wanted to pass on this legacy that his children be mighty, that they be champions in the land. And I've, I've mentioned this before in, in other sermons, but if you look at Saul, the king before David, he and his men slew no, slew no giants ever. David slew Goliath, and later we read about four of his mighty men slaying giants as well. Saul zero, David five. You know, who you are is what ends up being produced in your children. I'm not going to read the passage to you, but in Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, you can put that one up on the board if you would like, Exodus 25 and 6. But here it talks about how those who are wicked and haters of God, that God visits them and even unto the next generations, to the third and fourth generation, we might think, wow, that doesn't seem very fair or even just. <laughs> but just understand this, that who we are, men, as men, is produced in varying degrees in our children. And if there's wickedness, that wickedness is produced in our children. We leave behind that type of legacy. And as a result, wickedness begets punishment, curses, righteousness we see here. And it's not just three or four generations. The contrast is thousands of generations. The, the, the blessing is not equal to the cursing, it is many times more. And so we see a picture of God's love and mercy and compassion for those who love him and pursue him. And so what I'm telling you, men, if you can leave behind this legacy, it will super abundantly bless your children. You will set them up for success and they will be mighty in the land. They will be valiant. They will be champions, just like David was. That, that's the type of legacy I know that I want to leave behind and my wife wants to leave behind. So how do we do this? And so for the next 15 minutes or so or less, I, I want to share three things with you. How can we do this? Now, since I'm calling it a family inheritance, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus kind of like a, an illustration about our house. How do we keep our house in order, so to speak, so our families are highly impacted in a very positive way? Number one, don't leave the door open. Again, number one, don't leave the door open. How do you want to raise you, be such a blessing that your children are champions? Number one, don't leave the door open. I remember when I was in seminary at Regent University, we were in the housing there, and I think Kate had gone outside and left the door open. <laughs> now, she was young. It's a little court there area there, and so it's, you can keep, Meredith could keep an eye on her. Uh, 
but Kate left the door open. Mer- Meredith turns around. She's in the kitchen, and the kitchen kind of just is a straight beeline for the, the, the front door. And ducks managed to find their ways, their way into our house. The door had been left open. The ducks had come in, and she tried to shoo them out. And instead, they started running all over the the. The, the, the family room, and it was so hard, and, and I'm sure that she was praying in the spirit and doing whatever she could, and she was a little bit frightened, and she was trying to get them out, and I am just so grateful that they did not leave any door prizes behind. Just saying. So can I ask you, what do you permit in your home? Because leaving the door open means that we are monitoring what comes into our family, into our home. What do we permit in our home? Turn with me, and if you don't have time, because I'm going to read through these uh, passages quite quickly. Second uh, Samuel chapter twelve verses nineteen, chapter twelve verses nine through ten, and it says this: It says th- this is when David had sinned, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and had been a instrumental in having her husband killed. And the weight of that sin had not truly been felt on his shoulders until this point. Nathan the prophet comes to him. And he says, why, he's speaking prophetically as from the Lord. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And what we see here is that David's sin impacted his children, the next generation. Amnon, the oldest, he ended up stumbling into the very same sin as David with adultery, incest. Tamar. Tamar's brother, Amnon was the half-brother. Tamar's brother, Absalom, set up a plan to seek vengeance and killed Amnon. We have sexual immorality and murder right off the bat. David had allowed those sins into his home. And don't get me wrong, he did repent, and you can read about that in, in following verses. He says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But his problem is, even though he made this relationship right, he did not make this relationship with his family right. Now, we know that he didn't, because it, and, and, and that, that they had been aware of his sin, because in the next verse, we learn that, David, that God tells David, you have sinned to the point where you have brought contempt upon my name and the kingdom with, the en- with your enemies. They despise you. They despise me because of what you have done. So even David's sin had reached Israel's borders. Of course his family knew, but David did not make this right. He made his relationship with God right, but not his family. Can I just tell you this, men? We are going to blow it. Let's just be honest. We're going to blow it. You're going to probably blow it like I will this coming week. That's not our intention. I'm not praying that I'll blow it. Of course not. But we're going to. And so what do you, what's going to happen when you do blow it? 
And I can remember there were times in which in speaking with my wife and the kids were there, I was harsh with her. And instead of leading my emotions, I allowed my emotions to lead me. And I spoke harshly with her. And later, um, in order to get this relationship with her right, I knew I needed to find that opportunity when my kids were there that I apologized to them. And I'll have to admit, I didn't always do that. But I knew that I needed to. They, they needed to see that their, they, they observed their dad's behavior. They knew something was wrong with how he spoke. And now he confirmed that, you know what, I was wrong in how he spoke to your mother. Would you forgive me? Because, guys, if we don't do this, if we don't close that door, we are going to produce that very same negativity and criticalness and harshness, lack of love in our children. So we've got to close that door because, well, we don't want any door surprises. You understand what I'm saying. Because that will happen. And the devil's going to come in, and he's going to leave all of that stuff. You know what that stuff is? All around your living area, and you don't want that. David did not. He failed to do this, and he left, to some degree, some devastation in his children. Don't leave the door open. Close the door and close it all the way, men. Number two, keep the house in repair. That's right, keep the house in repair. You know, I'll be honest with you. If I were to sit down with a to-do list that's empty, things I need to do around the house, between my wife and I, I would have the whole page filled up. That's just the nature of it. There just seems to be so many, sometimes they're just little things. But there's was, there was been some big things that I personally failed to attend to right away, and I suffered the consequences. In one of our tubs upstairs, I noticed that there was just a little bit of uh, rust that had been forming, and you know, it just it didn't clean for whatever. And I just thought, ah, you know, it's probably it's just not going to come up. It, about a couple of months later, I I start hearing in my quiet times down below in the family room, I hear this drip, 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 drip. I'm wondering, what is that? Did someone leave the faucet on upstairs? And I went upstairs, and you know, they're taking a shower, so it's not, man, what is that? Now, this happens for about two weeks. Every now and then, I'm hearing it drip, drip, drip. What is going on? And before I know it, I'm looking underneath where I hear it coming from, and there's a spot in the ceiling. And what had happened is that the tub itself had slightly cracked at the drain, and it was leaking. And so I talked to Cole about it, and he gave me a way to uh, repair this. And so I did like it, one of these super repairs just to make sure that it wouldn't, and it hasn't. But I, it damaged our ceiling because I didn't take care of it right away. There was another time in which I noticed in the master bath along the tub that the, the caulk had started to come undone. And I've never had this happen before. But I noticed, and I said, you know, one day, right, guys, one day, uh, I'm going to take care of this. Now, that master bath is on the second floor. One day happens, but that one day, <laughs> one of my kids are in the bathtub and kind of splashing around a little bit, and the water spills over the side of the tub, and it's a large tub. And all of a sudden, I see a line in our ceiling, about six to eight feet long, straight line. And I went up there and I realized water had spilled over the edge of the tub. 
and down into my ceiling. And our ceiling had been ruined. Now, we're grateful. We were able to get the entire downstairs ceiling redone. And I did caulk that that day. But I left it unattended. Guys, keep your house in repair. Now, we see something here as we turn to 1 Kings chapter 1, in which, again, David does not do that. <clears throat> Amnon died. Absalom died. There was another son that we don't hear anything about. He apparently passed away as well. Adonijah is the fourthborn. So at this point, David is getting ready in his old age to turn the mantle of leadership over to another king, specifically Solomon, but it hadn't happened yet. Adonijah was actually older than Solomon, but David had promised the throne to Solomon. And, and I would venture to say that Solomon was the best suited for the job, but here's Adonijah, and, and he, I, I can only imagine that he's angry, and he is wondering, you know, I should be the, the crown prince, or, or I, he was the crown prince. I should be the one taking the throne, and apparently not, so he sought to seize it himself. And it says here in verse 3, it says, now Adon, excuse me, verse 5, now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him, the Typical thing that kings would do. His father, verse 6, his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. You know, when we fix the issues, we need to do them right away. Makes light work later. David didn't do that. He failed to approach Adonijah in all of these years wondering, why are, you, why are you doing that? Why are you wanting to jump off the roof of the garage? Why are you wanting to, you know, do this crazy thing that you're doing? And, and all of our kids have done this type of stuff. Uh, hopefully we brought some correction um, when, when they do some really stupid stuff and disobedience, disrespect, etc. We do bring that correction, no doubt. But my question is, do we allow a lot of things going unchecked, uncorrected? And, and many times, it, it's not just are we failing to, but how are we bringing the correction? Because honestly, sometimes we use a hand all the time and we view all of our children's problems as nails do we not and God is saying you know what no 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 there's a way to speak truth and love there's a way to be gentle and compassionate men there's some things that you can learn from your wives and how gentle they are in working with the children and, and we've got to realize that we need to, we need to deal with this issue. We need to repair the house, if you will. But we don't need to see all problems as nails. And we need to, yep, hammer, that's the answer. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to be gentle, at least at first. We need to pray, pray, pray. When my wife and I have seen issues rising in some of our children, we not only prayed, we fasted because we realized we need to take this very seriously. We need to focus on this. We needed to be consistent. Dads, we need to be consistent when we do bring that correction. Because if we're inconsistent, that type of behavior that we are seeing will tend to repeat itself. Because in the mind of the child, they will think, you know, maybe next time I will get away with it. Dads, it, 
Consistency is, is so important. Let's make sure we repair the house and, and we do it the whole, the whole way, all the way. We need to include our wives in some of these problem-solving issues. It, it, it would be foolish for me to come to my wife with a problem and the solution and then say, let's talk about it. I'm sorry, guess what? There's not going to be a discussion. If she disagrees with me, I'll get offended because she disagrees with how I should handle the problem. If I'm going to present a situation to her and a possible solution, I need to allow her to shoot it down or, or to say, you know what, I, I'm thinking maybe we need to view it this way. And we honestly, I think it was just yesterday, something similar came up and we're wondering, I had my mind made up. And I realized, I think I may need to let this go because I'm seeking my wife's input. And, and so I, I realized I need to let it go. So I said, you know, let, let me just sit on it for a few days. And I listened to what she had to say, and I'm praying about it. God, how do you want me to handle this? And so, you know, when we have our minds made up, guys, don't be, don't be caught by surprise if when your white wife kind of shoots it down, if you will, that you get offended. To deal with the problem, though, we approach it with humility, and we bring our wives into it, especially the harder ones. God has given them and gifted them. God has given them to you, and he's gifted them with an ability to see a problem from a different angle that you do not see. So men, if we're going to repair the house, we need to include our wives. And then lastly, we need to keep the AC running. Keep the AC running. It's summertime guys, we need to keep that AC running. Right now, I'm having a little bit of trouble with my upstairs thermostat. Every now and then, when I get home, my wife will say, Michael, I think we're having problems with the upstairs AC, and I'll go upstairs. It's nice and cool. You know, I was really hot as I come in, and and now it's nice and cool, and I'm really enjoying this, and I go upstairs, and there's like a difference of five to ten degrees. I said, wow. And what the problem is, for some reason, that thermostat, I'll say it gets stuck, but when the temperature goes above that point in which it's supposed to kick, in, kick on, it doesn't. And so I have to shut it off, wait for about 10 seconds, turn it to cool again, and then boom, the AC comes on. I'm getting a little weary of that. So I've got a plan in which how to fix that. But my poor wife has just been struggling for a couple of hours upstairs on her computer with it being 82 degrees upstairs. And, and, and I've been gone, and, you know, that's hard. Isn't it awesome, guys, when you're out and you just finished cutting the lawn and you come inside with a tall glass of iced tea and instead of 95 degrees outside, it's like 72 to 75 inside or wherever you set your AC. Isn't that nice? But you got to keep the AC running. You got to keep the AC running if it's going to work. If you're going to keep that house cool. Dads, we do that by helping set the atmosphere in our homes. What's the atmosphere like in your home? Is it one that's filled with anger? Is it one that's filled with strife, complaining? Do the children have a tendency to see the negative before they see the positive? Usually these things happen because, dads, we have allowed it to happen. The AC has shut off, and we have not corrected the issue, and the atmosphere in the home heats up. And so we got to keep the AC running. We need to be the ones to set 
the atmosphere. We need to be the ones to deal with that. Now, David, David did this in, in this particular way, and I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. And Solomon, he's, he's handed the baton of leadership off to Solomon. And <clears throat> understand this, David was a psalmist. After all, he did write Psalm 37, right? But that, he was a harpist. He loved music. He worshiped God. He had the heart of a worshiper. And I'm going to suggest that this worshipful atmosphere spilled over into his home. And I think we can see some of that here reflected in in Solomon's heart, in which God appears to Solomon in a dream and says, Solomon, what would you like as the, as the new king? What would you like me to give to you? What would you want me to do for you? And he could have asked for wealth. He could have asked for, you know, destroy all my enemies and extend my territory out, you know, all the way up to here and over there. And let me be a world conqueror, God. But he doesn't ask for anything like that. He asks for one thing, wisdom. Wisdom. And that's because David, his father, was a worshiper of God, and his heart was for God. And somehow that impacted Solomon so that his heart was not for the stuff of life, but it was for the Lord. It says in verse 12, God says to Solomon, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that you will never so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. How would you like God to say that to you? Wow. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime, you'll have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And then David and then Solomon woke up from his dream. But it was real. It happened. At least in this situation, it happened. And he ended up being the wisest king. Unfortunately for him, all the good that his dad poured into him as a worshiper and a man after God's own heart, even though Solomon started out that way, he lost his way. We don't know for how many years. But we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, apparently, as he did turn his focus to wealth and renown and all the, the stuff and the attractiveness and the glitter of the world and all that it has to offer, and he got caught up in all of that. By the time, by the time when he's older and he writes Ecclesiastes, he'd realize, you know what, I've, I've tried it all, I've done it all, and you know what? It wasn't worth it. Chasing after all of that stuff was like chasing after the wind. It was all in vanity. And there's only one thing that will last forever, and that is you in your relationship with God. Start there. That is where Solomon started. That is where he ended. But all those years in between, and he reigned for 40 years, he had a wandering heart. I believe David set his son up for success as a worshiper, as a man after God's own heart. So my, my question then is, dads, how can we, how can you be setting the temperature, if you will, in your own home? Here's one. Speak gently in anger-filled situations. Diffuse the heat, if you will. And when a child gets angry, or maybe your spouse gets upset with you for how you just treated her, or something that you said, or something that, that you did, you diffuse it 
with words that are gentleness. A gentle word turns away wrath. Customer service, those people are trained. When a customer is angry, don't get angry back at them. You're going to escalate the situation. Speak graciously. Be on their side. I'm going to take care of this for you. I've got your back. We're going to handle this. I am so sorry. Maybe we can learn something from those public relations people. Dads, diffuse the situation with gentle words. Be quick to apologize, but do it sincerely. If you, if you blew it, guys, okay. It's not like if you say something that your children are going to disrespect you, that actually they will probably disrespect you if you don't apologize. So let's do it. Let's have a humbled heart and realize that we can fail, and our children need to realize that we can fail, but we're going to apologize because we're men of God. Right, men? And we're going to take that and we're going to initiate that step. And we don't need our wives to pull us inside. You know what? You might want to consider apologizing. You know, maturity, leadership says, yeah, I'm going to take the initiative. I don't need someone to tell me this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to apologize. Be quick to apologize. Don't bring your work home. Guys, if you bring your work home, and it, that is if it's negative, the stress that's there, the, the, maybe the chewing out from the boss because he found one little mistake that you made or something along these lines, the difficulties that you encounter, the customers that you can never seem to please, though you do everything you can, you bring that into your home and you are going to bring negativity into your home. And I think that would be the exact opposite of what, Someone like David, a worshiper, would bring into his home. And, it, and it, it, that negativity just breeds negativity. It produces an attitude that doesn't see the good in situations. It sees the, the bad first. And guys, if we're going to do this, God just saying, oh, let, let, let's, lay, let's lay this aside. Bring the positive. Speak life when you get into your home. If you have a 15-minute drive home or a 30-minute drive home, let God help you deal with the workplace then, not after you walk through the door. All right, guys, can you receive that? When you do this, you are going to set the atmosphere temperature at a comfortable place, and it will be a place in which the kids can thrive. And lastly, guys, let's walk with the Lord. Let's walk closely with the Lord. David, a man after God's own heart, he had that, I like the way Mike Jeffords puts it, he had his field time. Uh, he had that time with the Lord, that worship time with the Lord, that time in which he was in the Word. David studied the law day and night. It was something that he was driven to. He delighted in it. And I'm going to encourage you men, walk closely with Jesus. Let Jesus rub off on you. Look at him and how he deals with situations. Let it overflow into your life and then let that overflow into your family. Men, follow after Christ. You know, if you, if you open the doors, you need to close them. Your children, if we follow these principles, your children will be mighty in the land. They'll be champions. They will dwell in the land. They will be able to walk in all of the inheritance that God has blessed you with, that God has blessed them with. That's something I want for my kids. I believe that this morning, a lot of you dads, all of you dads, 
in, in, in varying degrees. You have, you have done these things and you have impacted, highly impacted your children. So I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. And again, dads, thank you for being great dads. We have a lot of awesome, awesome dads in this church. You've really poured yourselves out. You love Jesus and your kids see that. Thank you. Father, I, I thank you for every single dad here and ask your blessing upon them, Lord. I ask God that you would give them many years serving and laboring in your kingdom and passing the baton off to their children and pouring into them. And I ask you, Lord, would you help us as men as we walk with you in purity, as we walk with you in faith, that we give no place to the enemy, that we only give place to you. Allow us, God, to be that thermostat in our home, setting the temperature. Jesus, would you please live through us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Dads, happy Father's Day. Enjoy it. Amen.